The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Stephen Harper served as Canada's Prime Minister from 2006 to 2015, period covering the global financial crisis, among many other key moments and challenges. Welcome to the Exchange podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Richard Beals. Stephen Harper is with us today. His book is out this month, entitled Right Here, Right Now, Politics and Leadership in the Age of Disruption. We are going to talk about some of the ideas in his book, as well as today's hot economic and political topics. Prime Minister Stephen Harper, uh, thank you very much for joining us on The Exchange. Uh, let's start, if I may, with trade, since it's in the news. Sure. Uh, we have this new NAFTA deal, let's call it that. I can't be dealing with the other name for it. Um, it's a little bit like the old NAFTA, but not entirely. Um, from your book, which is out uh, this week, uh, it seems you were a fan of the old NAFTA. Right. So are you a fan of new NAFTA as well? So the USMCA, as they're calling it, um, I would I would put it this way: um, it is it is not a completely different NAFTA, but it it's there's substan- substantive differences. It's it's these are not trivial changes. Um, obviously, from I think from the American standpoint, it was there's unequivocally wins that the administration can point to, with both uh, Canada and Mexico. From the Canadian standpoint. Um, I don't think the Canadian government can point to particular wins, but the fact is that it remains a comprehensive deal with wide-ranging access to the American market and wide-ranging and secure right. access. And in that sense, it remains a critical and beneficial agreement. The government, uh, as you know, there were some some individual concessions it had to make that will be uh, that will be difficult for it to manage. Okay, so talking about those a little bit. Maybe maybe, I'll just add one thing to that, which is I actually do think um, there's a particular opportunity here. Um, As you know, the the new agreement contains unprecedented clauses about um, how to deal with a non-market country. Right, another trade deal that one of the parties might want to do. I think provide incentives for the governments of both Canada and Mexico to work with the United States on its desire to open up the Chinese market. All three countries have very significant and growing trade deficits and market access issues with China. And I think there is a real opportunity here to work with the administration jointly on those things. In the case of Canada, I see that as being the only way Canada can really address those challenges. And that would seem to suggest trying to draw the U.S. back into TPP, maybe. You see a different alternative to that. I don't. I, I don't think this administration is open to that. As as you know, they've now begun right. informal talks with the Japanese, and the Japanese goal was the Americans and TPP. So, um, I, I don't think for Canada uh, that's essential. Um, I'm glad Canada stayed in the TPP because access to the Japanese market was very important. So we have access to the Japanese market and access to the American market. I don't think, for us, it's critical that the Americans be in TPP. Okay. And the whole NAFTA process, I mean, it started out, we didn't start out with this, but at a certain point, Trump's administration said, okay, we're going to talk to just Mexico, we're going to sideline Canada, and then um, Justin Trudeau's government came back in at the end and did the deal. I mean, did did you feel that was... The only option. How do you rate the government's performance in that? Process? Well, I, look, it's not a secret that I have not 
thought our government's handled this very well. But I, you know, I'm I'm really not kind of commenting on the day-to-day -day affairs of the government of Canada. Right. My big concern was that in my book is that we understand um, we understand some of the concerns in some cases legitimate that are driving concern of concerns about trade deals and that we adjust those things right. so that we continue to promote um, a globalized trading system. I, I, I worry that the reaction to kind of the populist backlash to date is either to deny that there are problems or to turn towards more explicitly protectionist or socialist right. economics. And I think both of those things are a mistake. Right. I mean, that's an interesting feature of, yeah. of your book is it's kind of, at least as I read it, you're a conservative, you know, you say you're a conservative, you're a conservative, but with, a, in my book, a fairly small c in the sense that you're pro-free trade, but only if it makes sense for the national interest. Um, and you seem to agree that the deal that the West, will agree with Donald Trump, that the deal the West has had with China is not a good one, and indeed a bad one. When, and, and so, do you, do you think that's being handled in the right way? Yeah, I think. Look, first of all, on the on on your on your preamble, I think that's absolutely the case. Um, and, and you know, I know there are uh, trade economists who would dispute this with me. I, as you know, I'm also an economist by trading, and um, you know, David Ricardo was talking about you know comparative advantage, Britain, Britain selling cloth to the Portuguese for wine. He didn't talk about the case where the Portuguese get to sell Britain whatever they want and the British can't sell the, right. the Portuguese anything. Right. And the problem, the, the essential problem in, in the current trade relationship with China is, as I see it and I saw it as Prime Minister, uh, you know, yes, the Chinese break the rules and there are intellectual property issues, but the more serious problem is the rules themselves. For all intents and purposes, the Chinese have wide-ranging access to Western markets unless we explicitly say otherwise. Whereas we have only access to Chinese markets when they explicitly say right. we do, in what quantity they say we do, in what products they say we do, and, in, and for how long we say that. And they have do. not opened up. I mean, we, we talk about financial services, a lot of breaking views, and that has, is one yeah. market that has not been opened up. Many of our markets haven't been opened up, and, and many markets that are open can be shut very quickly. And and so there is widely differential market access, and the consequence has been that, as we have seen, the loss of jobs in manufacturing and other sectors to low-wage economies, particularly to China, there have not always been commensurate opportunities for our own workers right. to sell products into that market. And I think this is a serious problem. So I think President is fundamentally right. Now, you know, with, uh, with, with the administration, I'm going to say I'm not here to rate the administration either but I, I'm, I'm not going to ask you so I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying anything out of school to say that it is often hard on a day-to-day -day basis to follow the administration strategy I, right so so t tariffs would not be or sort of an antagonistic approach with tariffs as, as well would not be the, the route you would choose to I, look I, I I I don't agree with those who say well yeah I'm I'm for taking this on but never through tariffs Tariffs are, without tariffs, you always will say you're going to fight a war without guns. I mean, tariffs are an important trade tool, right. and frankly, we use tariffs in normal circumstances, not just in kind of trade conflict circumstances. So, so um, look, I think that's part of a viable strategy, but, you know, it's, it's, not always, it's not always clear to me what the precise strategy is, although I, I do think the evidence is rising, you know, to give the administration a break. I do think the evidence is rising, and see, we see it in the USMCA with the China clauses, 
I do think the, uh, the, the evidence is rising that two things. First of all, the president is having more success than people thought he would have on the trade file. He's actually having some successes. And secondly, there does appear to be more strategy than is sometimes evident. <laughs> but, um, but time will tell. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, with NAFTA, it's kind of a little bit easy, at least simplistically for me to see, well, if you sort of tear something down and build it up to more or less what it was, is that a win? I'm not sure. Well, as I say, I think the, I, I think, I think the president, I, I think the administration addressed two things. He addressed the one and only thing I thought was a real issue with NAFTA, which was the, the, the departure of a lot of the car production industry to Mexico. Right. And he's, he's tried to address, address that. But the other is, because I consider China the real issue, he's actually kind of partly addressed the China issue through the USMCA, which was, I think, the surprise, right. and tells me there is maybe more of a strategy than is sometimes apparent. Okay. And the, I mean, the other, just to talk about the administration here in the U.S. more generally for a second, you had some interesting thoughts in the book about the forces that might have driven uh, the, the election of yep. Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, you expressed some reservations about whether his policies are sort of addressing the, right. the, the feelings and shortcomings and problems behind those forces. Right. Whether they'll be effective. Yeah. Um, I mean, how, you know, trade is one area, as you say, you can certainly argue there's beginning to be a few wins, the strategy may not be clear. Taxes was, at least ideologically and for companies, a big success, but yeah, look, perhaps I not a very balanced reform. So I, I, it's a little bit tough for me from my philosophical perspective on the tax cut because, as you know, I ran a tax cutting government, but I adhered to, uh, I'm a kind of an old-fashioned believer in balanced budget, budgets, and so we only cut taxes when we thought those tax cuts were sustainable within the budgetary framework over the long right. period. And obviously, now here in the American environment, there's nobody, Democrat, Republican, or Independent, who seems to care about the fact that the U.S. Well, once is, they're in power, they don't care about well. Nobody, nobody. Right? I'm not really seeing any evidence anybody really cares about the scale of American right. borrowing. In fact, I often hear, you know, even kind of conservative Republican friends of mine telling me that because we're quote we're a reserve currency, none of this matters to the United States. Right. I, 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 I kind of dispute that. Although I can't, I can't deny that in the near term. The world seems prepared to lend the Americans an awful lot of money at very low interest, but I still think it's an unsound policy. So in that context, I would not have been cutting taxes or raising spending. Um, but look, I, I think the tax, the tax cut addressed, there's no doubt the tax cut addressed some structural issues in, in the U.S. corporate yeah, system. That the were, headline were tax very, rate was were very wide. Well, not just, not just the rate. There were some structural changes that made a lot of sense. And the rate probably needed to well, go... the overseas domestic thing made the rate, sense the to rate, fix yeah, that. Exactly. Sure. And the rate needed to go down. Did it make sense to lower it as far as it did? I'm not sure. And did it make sense not to have you know, a, 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 a tax package with more widely distributed benefits? I, I think that was politically, uh, you know, is, is politically the more difficult situation. You see that now with you know, Republicans campaigning. Yeah, in the, look, they're campaigning on a good economy, um, and they deserve credit for that. But when they try and campaign specifically on tax cuts, they find that no People voter they want to hear it. Well, no yeah. voters seen a tax cut. Right, that's right. the problem. So there's an election. I think it has to be uh, by some, this time next year in Canada. In Ontario, is that about right? Uh, or in Canada? Yeah, it doesn't have to be, but by law, we have a, a maximum five-year term. But by law, a date is set 
four years in advance, and it will be in right. October of 2019. Right. And what are you what, what are you seeing? As so uh, the look, prospects I, there because we, uh, as look. you know, I tend I tend not to comment on domestic Canadian affairs very much. I'm um, obviously a supporter of the Conservative Party of Canada. I continue to sit on the financial board of the party and help them raise money, and I'm supportive of our leader, Mr. Scheer. And I'm encouraged by the fact that we've seen right-of-center governments get elected now, you know, particularly in right. both Ontario and Quebec, very large provinces, and uh, possibly New Brunswick in the very near future. The light's still a hung outcome. Right. So I'm encouraged by the, the general direction, and, and you know, I look beyond that, I, I wouldn't comment. Okay, that's yeah. fair enough. Can we, let's pivot a little back 10 years to the financial crisis yeah. when yeah. You were prime minister at the time. Um, you had, you know, a market and an economy and a financial system that proved to be more resilient than right. most of the others in the West. I think. Well, it's, not just it's more resilient. The big, the big uh, advantage we had was that none of the causes of the crisis were emanating from Canada. Right. You know, we had at the time, if you look back, government for the most part, business, household. Uh, financial sector balance sheets that were all strong right. and uh, and so that enabled us first of all to obviously we were still hit with the effects of the crisis and, and hit for a brief time fairly severely but it helped us to respond to them and to come out of it pretty quickly and, what you, and in what fact I think the Canadian financial sector as a consequence really it's 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 kind of overall global presence um, really long-term significant increase as a consequence of that. The banks, right. the Canadian banks, pension funds, others became, they were already big players, but became relatively right. bigger players. Now that, that's, yeah. that's probably fair, actually, because TD bought commerce, right? There were a lot yeah, of, a lot of purchases. Of that, and certainly yeah. the yeah. pension funds are big yeah. investors yeah. nowadays. Yeah. Um, what did the rest of us, the US, yeah. Europe, learn from that? Or oh, I mean, what did Canada learn from it, but perhaps less to learn? Well, um, come to the economic lessons in a second. Uh, obviously, the book is focused more on the politics of this. Yep. Um, I think that in retrospect, um, you know, at the time as leaders, we all were, I don't want to exaggerate, congratulating ourselves, or we were all satisfied with the fact that we did recover from the crisis relatively quickly. And if you look at what happened in the 1930s, which was a stock market and financial crisis that became a global 10-year depression leading to yep. a world war, we avoided that. And how did we avoid that? We uh, avoided that through a combination of uh, coordinated monetary measures. Obviously, there was ongoing rapid shrinkage of the money supply in the United States and other countries because of yep. what happened in the 1930s. We avoided that problem. We um, um, we had, generally speaking, significant stimulus programs. I, I'm not as one as convinced that fiscal policy was uh, really a contributor to the Great right. Depression. It certainly wasn't a solver of it. Right. But we had stimulative fiscal policies that were appropriate, and, and in, at least certainly in the case of Canada, they were short-term and effective. Right. We came out of the, the stimulative fiscal policy very quickly. As, well, as quickly as we did it, we came out of it. Um, and the third thing was we really avoid global protectionism. Now, not to say there, you know, WTO will say there were a rise in protectionist right. measures, but these were at the margin. There was certainly no rush to protectionism as a, as a kind of a national policy right. in any major country. Right. And so we thought at the time, um, 
you know, things look pretty good. I think that what happened in many countries, and I, you know, I cautionly caution my readers, constantly caution my readers, particularly my Canadian readers, I'm not talking about Canada, whose experience has been very difficult, very different. And the, different, the big difference in Canada, of course, is we did not have a financial sector bailout. What happened, I think, in retrospect, in countries that had major financial sector bailouts, followed by very slow uh, recovery yeah. or non-recovery for the working population, is you really had a, a, a kind of a, a deep psychological severance of the, of the, for lack of a better term, the social and political compact. Yeah, there was no bailout for, yeah. and certainly no apparent bailout for anybody else. But, but, but not just that right. there was no bailout for anybody else. We were, you know, the whole context was the era of globalization, all governments, businesses, even academia, it all told us, you know, we're now market oriented, don't expect big bailouts. Yeah, we have some social protections, but you, we kind of got to make our way in our market. We got to be competitive, you know, blah, blah, blah. And when push came to shove, it was, you know, capitalism for the working class and socialism for the, for the, the big banks and the, quote, the wealthy. Right. right. And I think that in, and that I think really um, is, it, I think really is the source now preceding that in many countries, long stagnating middle and working right. class wages, that has been now the basis of significant political upheaval. People just no longer, people wanting new options, very dissatisfied with how uh, established institutions on both the center right and center left have right. been responding to their concerns, either in the case of the center right, denying that in areas like trade, immigration, market economies that they are facing any kind of serious problem, right. or in the case of the left, just being outrightly derided. And I just think that the people, a lot of people are fed up and are looking for something different. And, um, and so the essence of my book is to say that um, they're not wrong. Objectively speaking, when you sit back and look at the facts, there are problems in these areas. There are also solutions. Right, so problems with the the fallout from globalization. There are, there are problems with growing income inequality. There yeah. are problems with trade. There are yeah. problems with immigration. And there are, frankly, problems around some of the attitudes around globalization of elites. And, you know, to, to tell people to, to kind of, I say in the case of some traditional conservatives, deny it, or in the cases of liberals, chalk it all up to extremism, bigotry. You, you can do that when you're talking 1% or 2% of the population. Right. But, you know, when you're talking saying that 45 or 46% of people are deplorables, like you're just in an area where a democratic politician cannot go. How do you explain this, these divisions you see where, it's, you're right, in, in New York you can't, it, it's, you have to be pretty careful with any even remotely centrist view on the economy or immigration or something like that. And you, you, know, you talk in the book in sort of a very pragmatic way, not being conservative but practical, and one, one, of, one of your, one of the things says, you know, like America first, Canada first, but not Canada only. Right. Now, that's nuance, and nuance seems to have a real struggle getting through right now. What, what, what can anybody do about that? Well, this is why I wrote the book. Um, and I admit that, and you know, I, I'm really trying to reach an American audience, and particularly an American conservative audience, um, to say that, you know, a couple of things that let's recognize why the president's campaign was successful. Mm -hmm. And that we have, we don't have to say it was all right, but we do at a minimum have to adjust. 
And so that's really my message. And yes, it involves some nuance just on the conservative side. Um, and I look, I admit that, that this is a message going into a market where views are, if anything, polarizing, almost tribalizing. But, you know, I, I do happen to think that in public policy, and as you know, the views I express in the book are, the views are nuanced but not wishy-washy. Uh, my views are strong, but I do think we need discussion of actual policies. And right. I think um, it, it's you know, we have to recognize what problems are, but we have to get beyond slogans or, you know, kind of get behind, beyond collusion theories. And as I say that in the book that I think there are much worse outcomes than we've got. You know, people who decry the Donald Trumps or the Nigel Farages need to take a look at the Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyns if they really think they've got a problem now. Um, <laughs> right. Because, um, um, you know, the, the kind of the current populist wave, which is for the most part of populism of the right, is trying to fix democratic capitalist societies. It, some of its solutions may right. be wrong or not well thought out, but it, that's what it's trying to do. The, the Farages or the uh, Corbins and the Saunders are not trying to fix our societies, they're trying to tear them down. And if we get on that kind of a path right. in the current competitive global environment, it would mean an irreversible economic decline, which just should not happen. I mean, right. it, it should not happen. We have. We have the means to be capable of avoiding that. <laughs> we have we face tremendous transformative and disruptive change, but we have the means of addressing it and adapting right. and prospering as nobody else does. And so surely our politics can't become so screwed up and the lack of debate and right. and dialogue becomes so dysfunctional that we can't actually right. seek any solution of any kind. So that, that's kind yeah. of where I worry. Um, we're not there in Canada, obviously. In Canada, we're in a different environment entirely. But um, I'm worried we're there in the, the, you know, I'm worried we're there in the United States. I'm worried we're there in some parts of Europe right. too. So on that, well, that, that was a little negative note, but on that sort of optimistic idea that we should be able to fix it, let me finish with a few slightly quicker fire things, yeah. if I may. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a have a ski house in Canada, so I go there quite often. I Whereabouts in uh, BC in Silver Star. Okay. Um, and so I see the currency move around. And yeah. At one point, um, while you were prime minister, I think it was pretty much parity. It's now oh, at one 70, point at one point we hit almost a dollar ten. We had a brief spike. So seventy-seven cents ish yeah. today. Then, I mean, yeah, does it does it matter? Do you is it something you ever thought about? Focused on? I mean, strong dollar kind of. Well, they, idea. I think for, I think first of all, um, I, I would say a couple of things. I don't talk about this in the book, but I think first of all. Um, the the flexible and floating uh, dollar over time has been a very useful policy tool right. for Canada. Notwithstanding its close integration with the United States, it's an important and meaningful policy tool and I think underscores the degree to which the euro was an enormous error, an enormous error. Hmm. Because certainly the euro brings together countries that have far less economic commonality and integration than than Canada, than the United States. And so the, the loss of that policy flexibility it was, it has been a very serious problem right. for Europe adjusting to its own set of fiscal and right. economic and financial sector challenges. one of the advantages that the UK had within the Exactly, yeah. exactly. In fact, I always thought one of the strongest arguments was one of the strongest and weakest arguments for, about Brexit. One of the 
strongest arguments against Brexit was we already stayed out of the bad part. Right. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll never get back in without going back into the or, bad Or as you would say, the bad bits, the bunch <laughs> of the bad bits. Um, now, on the other hand, it turned out to be one of the strongest arguments for Brexit because the Brexiteers could say, well, you told us we should go in, all the, right. all the, all the Remain side who were all in favor of going in the Euro were wrong, right. and I think only convinced people they were wrong again. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that may be so right. it kind of ended up cutting both ways. So look, um, so I, I think first of all, having the, the, the uh, independent monetary policy and flexible exchange rate is important. That said, um, you know, we, we face as a government, as I reflect on this, we face the limitations of that uh, uh, independence. Um, you know, I think a couple of times uh, early in my uh, tenure, the Bank of Canada allowed speculative spikes that should not have happened. Um, but more importantly, um, you know, under, under Governor Carney, as we came out of the recession, it was both, I, I know it was Governor Carney's view and also the view of my Minister of Finance, Jim Flaherty, that we wanted to see rates go back to more normal levels. Right. And because we did believe, and you've seen the effect in Canada on the housing market, we did believe that sustained very, very low rates would, would cause misallocation of, yeah. of capital, and it has in all Western countries. But it did, particularly in the Canadian housing sector, especially given, you know, see the difference in pattern in Canada and so many other countries, you see the difference in the, in the crisis. Almost every other Western country, we've seen a fall in household indebtedness, right. the consequence in Canada, because things are relatively good, and interest rates were low, household indebtedness rose, and it rose to, uh, you know, to levels that I, I think in some cases are concerning. But what we faced was, as we pushed rates back up, as the bank pushed rates back up, and they, you know, they obviously, they're independent, but they, they keep in close dialogue with the government. Yeah. Once the differential got beyond 1%. With the, with the U.S.? We, yeah, yeah. We, we, we would face significant upward pressure on the dollar to the point of right. being a serious concerns and export competitiveness. Right. So, right. so we ended up you know, having to keep, even though we did keep a differential for some time, it ended up being a, still a lower rate than we yeah. desired. So you know, in the end, the, the rate is not infinitely flexible. So I think, uh, you know, I think overall, it's great we have an independent monetary policy, and but you know, you've got to guard against the lessons are you've got to guard against speculative run-ups, and you, right. and you can't. And the, the truth is, you can't get too far removed from the American rate um, without without right. having undesirable effects. That makes sense. Stephen Harper, former Canadian Prime Minister, thank you very much for joining us on the Exchange. Thanks for having. That is all for this episode of The Exchange. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud for more of The Exchange, Viewsroom and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out on breakingviews.com and on Twitter at Breaking Views. Thanks for tuning in.